Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at this week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. The ongoing crisis in Ukraine as the Russian invasion continues remains the most important story in politics right now, and it's been a chaotic week for the Home Office, whose complicated refugee policy has been described as cruel by those trying to navigate the system. We'll have an interview with Robert Buckland, former Justice Secretary, who has been among a group of Conservatives calling for the Home Office to use more technology to move faster on accepting those refugees, fleeing the shelling which has devastated several cities in recent days. I'm joined to discuss this by Politics Home reporter Eleanor Langford and our departing political editor Kate Proctor, who is spending her last day with us on the podcast. So thanks very much for that. And if I can start with you, Kate, we're recording this on Thursday lunchtime. Where is the UK on allowing Ukrainians into the country? So we've had some movement today. The Home Secretary, after coming under a huge amount of pressure, has finally said that there's going to be some changes for people that are coming on the family scheme. So this biometric testing, so this is your fingerprints or facial recognition, the stuff that has to be done usually in person at a visa processing centre, all of that can now be done at a later date. So if you are a Ukrainian with a passport and a relative in the UK, you are able to come to this country and the biometric stuff is going to be waived. If you don't have a passport, then you're still going to have to go through this very lengthy process of having to get all of your biometric data done. And as, we've, as we're going to come on to, there's been some really difficult stories of people that are fleeing Ukraine and yet stuck in this kind of no man's land of just waiting to be processed and they're not quite sure how this is going to work out for them. And Kate you mentioned some of the stories that we've been hearing this week about our colleague John Johnston has been writing about it can you give us a little insight into what he's been uncovering? So John's been speaking to families in the UK mainly that have relations over in Europe who are trying to get from Ukraine through to some of these European countries and eventually try and get to the UK. He's spoken to one family who are in uh, Romania. He's spoken to an elderly couple's daughter and they're having a really difficult time. They're basically trying to go through all of this administration process at the moment. She's saying, you know, this is nonsense. You know, her grandparents are in their early 70s. They're in good spirits, but, you know, they're currently sleeping on people's floors. It's really cold, Mm. the snow, and all of this is just taking a lot of time to process their information. John's also been speaking to someone who has gone out to one of the visa processing centres in Poland and they found that there was only five members of staff there. They're completely overwhelmed. They can't get through all the people. They've essentially had to send people away, tell them to come back another day. And not only that, but they're saying some of their computer systems just crashed, basically, Mm. just because it's been so overburdened. And so what was announced this morning, you know, is obviously going to start coming in, I think, on, on Tuesday. Is what we've heard from the Home Secretary actually going to make a difference to those cases that we've been hearing about? Yes. So if you have a passport, you can skip the biometric test. So you can skip these face-to-face appointments that are happening at these processing centres in Europe. And for example, a family of five would need five separate biometric appointments. So this is how and why things are taking such a long period of time. So now if you have passports, you don't need to do that and you can come to the UK. It's going to be more difficult for people, obviously, that don't have a passport. They still have to go through that system. I mean, I think this will speed things up, especially for the family reunion route. But of course, for the Ukrainians that don't have the links to the UK that exist already, they're their hope is, is a sponsorship route. And we're going to hear more about that in the coming days, we understand from Michael Gove, mm. um, the levelling up secretary. That will probably involve people, Brits, basically being asked to sponsor a Ukrainian, whether that's through work and also perhaps 
providing the accommodation themselves. Yeah. We're expecting some kind of, if you have a spare room and you can accommodate people, then you're very welcome to come to the UK. But none of this really is as good as what we're seeing from some of the other European nations in yeah. terms of welcoming people. We know that Poland is, has 1.2 million Ukrainians there at the moment. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a sort of that generosity, I think, that we're seeing from other countries. I think there is that sense that the UK wants to be as generous as well, but without that sponsorship scheme has not been able to. And Ellie, you've been looking at kind of the, the data, the numbers on the amount of people that have been arriving in the UK and how that kind of compares due to, to those other neighbouring countries in Europe. And so what have you kind of uncovered around those um, schemes around the, Europe? Yeah, so Kate's right. Poland at the moment has taken over 1.2 million. 2.2 million Ukrainians have now left the country and are spreading throughout Europe. They're mainly going to the neighbouring countries. So Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia. The most recent figures we have that the UK has taken between 500 and 750 through this family visa scheme, which is not very many when you look at it in comparison with Ireland, and they've already taken 2,200. There's some other outliers. Greece has taken quite a lot of people. Germany has taken a lot of people. Germany's taken a couple of thousand. France has taken about 5,000 already. And they are all much less strict with their visa system, yeah. so people can just come in, whereas we have got by far the strictest visa system at the moment. Yeah, and as we've been hearing this week as well, the, the Ukrainian ambassador himself was talking about issues that have been facing. He said that his wife was struggling to get a visa. And so it's kind of um, an indication of how, I guess, how stringent our policies have been in, in recent years and how difficult it is, especially when you have to then increase them and operate them at scale and at speed. Yeah, and that was quite shocking. He was at the Home Affairs Select Committee this week and was very impassioned saying how all these problems that we're now seeing with Ukrainians coming to the UK, none of them are new. Like He said that his own wife couldn't get a visa when he is the ambassador yeah. to this country for Ukraine. It doesn't sort of bode well for everyone else, does it, if the if the wife of the ambassador? And I just wonder if, in that instance, whether, you know, maybe what we're seeing is that the government is perhaps out of touch with the public and that the way the public want to see more people coming and actually they need to move faster. And actually the sponsorship scheme that has been talked about, it's been 10 days since Priti Patel announced it. We've still not heard anything. The Spectator, their front cover this week, was quite interesting and in that it sort of seemed to suggest that on that theme that the UK hadn't been as generous. Kate, I wonder what you made of it. The Spectator front page is really quite quite a visual description of what's what's been going on. So you've got Priti Patel holding a huge ream of paper and it's sort of showing this checklist of what everyone needs to do to come to the UK. And then she's standing next to other depictions of European countries and they don't have that list at all. So we look like the most bureaucratic country. And uh, right, well, the rest of the countries all says welcome. Yeah. It says welcome to refugees and, and we're holding up this this list of, of people. And I think that that kind of taps into a lot of people if you look at the polling about how people feel. And, and, and Ellie, how do you think that's kind of sort of play out in the future? Do you think that the kind of the government has been widely praised for a lot of things, but do you think that they're going to start to see a bit of a negative backlash if they can't match their actions with from the rhetoric they've been having? I think so. I mean, the, the Yugo polling was that I think it was 75, 76% of the public back Ukrainians coming here. That is an overwhelming number. Mm. And you mentioned spectator cover, and there's been a lot of very strong reactions in the Commons. I think it's really going to show very soon in the public backlash that this may have been a wrong move. And one thing that I thought was very interesting is Hungary, which neighbours Ukraine. Viktor Orban, their president, has previously had a really, really hard line stance yeah. on refugees and immigration and has thrown open 
his borders. He is letting everyone in. I think he realises the gravity of the situation. And if someone like that is being more open than us, then it really, it really does say something. Yeah, I put this in my interview with Robert Buckland that we'll hear shortly. I, I put it to him that actually that part of this is down to the fact that the Home Office has consistently tried to make it quite difficult for refugees and, and other people to enter the country and that it perhaps goes back to the kind of history of the hostile environment. He sort of re- rejected that and says that actually the UK has a, has a history of being open but I do wonder if actually a lot of the issues that we're seeing in terms of the, the processing and the ability to get people into this country is a hangover from those kind of policies over the past few years. I mean, I would just say Priti Patel's one task when she got this job being Home Secretary was to curb immigration. Mm. And her main body of work has been a shift to this points-based system. And we've talked a lot in the past about the merits of having this kind of Australian-based, you can come here on skills if you if you meet the right language requirements. And I think that there's been this real difficulty with the Home Office to try and be nimble and look at each individual humanitarian situation on its own merits. You can't apply and keep on ramming through this points-based system when you are faced with something that is so significant that it's the biggest crisis in Europe since the Second World War. So I think Priti Patel has probably taken longer than people would expect because I just think she's so wedded to this policy idea, which really was the whole point of her having this job in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely going to be a tricky one for them to keep navigating. And as I mentioned, I've interviewed uh, Robert Buckland. We'll we'll get on to that now. Uh, The much-trailed humanitarian sponsorship pathway was announced 10 days ago, but is yet to be fleshed out, leaving Britain far behind other countries in Europe in terms of accepting refugees. In an urgent question this week, Tory MP after Tory MP stood up to criticise the Home Office for not being able to move fast or far enough in welcoming those trying to escape the terrible conflict. One of those calling for more to be done was the ex-Cabinet Minister Rob Buckland, who wants to see technology used better to speed up the process, as applications have been bogged down in the bureaucratic mire. I spoke to him earlier and began by asking him what he made of the Home Office response and Patel coming back to the Commons to update the scheme earlier today. Well, I warmly welcome today's statement. I and other Conservative MPs have been pressing for technology to become our friend because the online immigration ID app has been successfully used by many thousands of Hong Kong visa applicants. And I have thought for some days now that we need to extend that scheme to Ukrainian friends as well who want to come here. And that's going to happen. I think that uh, clearly it's not the end of it. There's more to be done to deal with those Ukrainians who don't have passports and certainly not biometric ID. And that's why I think it's vital now that the new refugee minister, Richard Harrington, a very experienced former refugee minister, can bring together officials and bring as many officials as possible to the front line to process these applications as quickly as possible so that Britain can play its full part in uh, welcoming refugees from an appalling war situation. You mentioned Richard Harrington there. Do you think that his appointment this week actually is a shows actually perhaps the government has not moved quickly on, on this and is, is an example of why you know, moves they could have done previously? We knew this was going to happen and, and it's taken a kind of massive crisis for them to actually bring in someone to take a grip of this. Well, look, it's easy to be wise after the event and government is faced with daily priorities and choices and uh, the work of the Home Office is complex. They're dealing with the Afghan scheme, they're dealing, as I've said, with the Hong Kong scheme, they're dealing with uh, everyday applications that are being made in their tens of thousands. So it's, I think it's easy to be an armchair critic. I think what's important now 
is that the Home Office is seen to move quickly in order to deal with this developing crisis. And Richard, who did brilliantly when he was the Syrian refugees minister, coordinating and bringing together officials in an effective way, will, I've no doubt, use his political and Home Office experience to quickly improve what has been a somewhat concerning situation in the last uh, couple of weeks. It's not just been you and others in, in the Conservative Party that's been from across the, the political spectrum asking for the government to go further, to go faster, look at other countries and the amount of people that they've taken in so far. UK sort of lags quite far behind both in numbers and in also sort of proportion of, of population. But I just wondered what, how you kind of felt on that, whether, you know, I saw your colleague Alex Shelbrook say that, you know, he felt that it was a disgrace or perhaps you wouldn't go that far. But, you know, how did it make you feel when you see other countries welcoming people and with open arms and, and the UK not being able to match that? Well, I'm deeply impatient. And Alec, uh, I was with him. I'd asked a question about the ID biometric scheme earlier, which the government had now followed through on. But Alec's uh, anger and impatience and frustration was clearly demonstrated. I share that uh, frustration. And so do my constituents. I've had a lot of people in Swindon contact me, not just with offers of help and humanitarian aid, which is incredible and wonderful, but also offers of shelter and accommodation for uh, refugees who uh, choose to come to the UK. The generosity of spirit that I'm seeing is overwhelming. And it's not surprising to me because I know the instinctive generosity of the British people. And it's vital that government leans into this. But I think you talked about the, the generosity there. Do you think, in the sense, the government has not been able to allow the UK public to be as generous as they'd like to be? We've seen scenes in, in Germany of, of people welcoming Ukrainian refugees off the train, offering places. That the offer is there from the UK, but because the sponsorship pathway and other systems that the government said they were going to put in place are yet to be around, it feels like the, the UK public has not been able to show that generosity in the way that they would like to. I've mentioned impatience on my part. I think a lot of people are impatient to get on with welcoming refugees, which is why Michael Gove's department, which has been given the job of setting out the details of how the scheme will work locally, will, I am assured, very shortly announce those details. I'm desperate to get on with this because I want to share that information on social media. I expect to see a flood of offers from Swindon and other places uh, for people to uh, accommodate and welcome refugees we just want to get we want to get on with this yeah yeah and, and you know inevitably ukrainian people are going to want to stay as close to their country as possible bearing in mind loved ones are still there and that's why the initial pressure is always going to be on poland hungary and slovakia for example and romania but as the the sheer number of people who are displaced continues to rise we're now coming up to what two million that's i think going to double at least then Britain has to play a role. This isn't a sort of luxury of choice, I think, for us. I think it's an obligation, not just moral, but a logistical obligation to help our friends and neighbours in Europe. I don't put it like shouldering a burden. It's not a burden. This is a, an obligation that we should all share as fellow human beings to want to help people in genuine need. And that's precisely what I want to see happen in our country. Yeah, um, obviously 
the, like you say, the, the sponsorship scheme is coming out of the levelling up department under Michael Gove. Have you heard anything um, from him or other ministers in that department about when we're going to find out details? Obviously, it's been more than 10 days now since Priti Patel mm. announced it was coming. And that's the one that really could, as you say, help the public show that generosity by allowing private individuals and, and councils and other bodies to sponsor people to come to the UK. Do you have any indication of, of when that's going to come? Obviously, that impatience you talk about, when is that going to be sated? I'm waiting for that announcement. I, I know that Michael is working with officials to develop that scheme and he's been, I know, discussing that with uh, other MPs and uh, I still haven't yet got a firm date as to when that announcement's going to be made. Frankly, we need it in days, if not hours, yeah. so that we can start this process. And uh, whilst I'm a great believer in uh, parliamentary protocol, if he was able to announce it as soon as the weekend, great. You know, that gives us even more time to get this system up and running. And then we need to see how it works, because I want to make sure that this isn't an overly bureaucratic, stultifyingly slow, computer says no type of approach, which I think will put people off and will only serve to, I think, undermine the reputation of Britain even further. You know, we need something streamlined, easy to use, secure, of course. I absolutely get that and I agree with it wholeheartedly, but something that works not just for for us here in Britain, but most importantly for those families who are, are, are fleeing persecution and war. You talk about that bureaucracy. Obviously, you, you know, you worked in the Ministry of Justice for for a long time, and as as a minister there, and I just wondered whether you could see from the inside some of those problems, and and whether your time working alongside the Home Office, whether you've kind of seen those problems, and whether you felt that actually, you know, there's work could be done to to improve that, and whether actually, you know, part of this is to do with a long-standing issue over process for visa applications over the last few years. Well, you're right. And as Secretary of State for Justice, I work very closely with the Home Secretary and the Home Office. And I think the relationships between our departments were extremely strong and grew ever closer because of our shared interests in security and criminal justice. I think uh, the issue is very much born of a perhaps um, a long-term question about priorities, about capacity, about the need for there to be some emergency contingency planning. But I think what we learned from COVID was that where there's a will, there's a way. Mm. And I think that uh, particularly on the front line, where let's say you've got a capacity issue, such as I had when in the early days of COVID, when prison officers sadly were, were falling ill because of the, 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 the disease. And there was a real risk that we were going to have quite a serious dip in people being able to come to work in our prisons. I uh, and senior officials made sure that we used officials from the central department to go out to those prisons, those officials with prison and governor experience, to go back out to the front line to uh, fill those gaps and to make sure we have the capacity to manage our prison system. Mm. And I think it's that sort of approach that I know the Home Secretary is increasingly taking to, to, if you like, bring forward officials with that uh, visa experience back to the front line and even appeal across Whitehall because there will be lots of ex-Home Office officials now working in other departments who could help with this process because they have the expertise. And I do think that sort of cross-governmental approach, which the Home Secretary rightly emphasised in her reply to me today, is going to be the way to crack this. And I'm confident that Richard Harrington would be the person who can help bring this together at some speed. Mm. Partly my point as well is that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether this comes back to the sort of the hostile environment created through the Home Office and through immigration over the years. And actually that, you know, we shouldn't in a sense be surprised that an immigration system which has been 
set up to be quite difficult to use and difficult to navigate is then unable to operate at speed and much wider essentially and whether you think that actually in a sense the, the government now seems a bit out of step with the public who, who like I say want to be very generous want to uh, admit as many people as possible and the government have got themselves into a bit of a, a difficult place on that I think that's a very unfair characterization it, I'm afraid it's blown apart by the government's extremely sensible offer to the people of Hong Kong mm. who, are, who have applied for visas and, uh, and know that they have a route of safety if the situation in the special administrative region in Hong Kong gets worse. That was a robust and correct response to increasing changes being made by that regime, which were, I think, in, are inimical to freedom of speech and democracy. We stood up and were counted on that. The Home Office have created a scheme that is being well used. So I don't accept this argument that somehow there's been a departure from our traditions of openness and generosity. It does feel a bit that they've been sort of bounced into some of those changes this week, though, that essentially that, you know, the government cited sort of security issues and is now sort of suggesting that they're willing to put those aside. That makes you feel like it was a little bit perhaps more an ideological decision rather than a practical decision in, in, in the first place. No, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't buy this this point about ideology. I, I think this is a a genuine crisis situation that has escalated in ways that uh, perhaps not all of us foresaw. I mean, I think our intelligence was leading us to the clear conclusion that Putin was going to depart from his previous conduct and launch an attack. And I think I think that um, therefore everybody's now had to move at incredible speed. And that clearly means that there, there will be frustrations and there will be you know concerns about the ability of the Home Office to, to do this. But look I think at the end of it all, where we need to end up is a situation where people who perhaps already uh, have left or are coming out of Ukraine know and will be able to rely on with certainty the involvement of the UK as part of a family of nations, shouldering their uh, moral responsibility with a glad heart and a generous Mm. heart and welcoming uh, women and children in the main who are doing nothing other than getting away from death, destruction and an illegal, unprovoked invasion. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson entered this kind of um, Ukraine crisis in, in a lot of personal problems and to, to do with how the government was faring. And obviously he's, his opinion ratings have gone up. People think that he's, he's doing a, a good job in this and been trying to say the UK has led the way on things like sanctions and, and refugee programmes and, and, and how it's sort of responded to to the Ukraine crisis. We saw Vladimir Zelensky give his address to Parliament this week and obviously was very effusive in his praise. Do you think, though, that unless the government can actually follow through on those things, we saw an increase in, in sanctions after a bit of a quiet period today, but unless the government can actually get on with providing that sponsorship pathway to allow more people to come, obviously we're still at sort of around a thousand people so far with visas. Do you think that essentially that will turn and the, and, and the public will, will decide that actually they they feel the government hasn't gone far enough, that the, the, the antics have not matched the rhetoric, essentially. Well, look, I, I think that the, the refugee issue is an important component of the government's response to this dreadful crisis. But I think it's only part of it. I think overall, uh, you, as you've indicated, the Prime Minister is actually conducting this extremely well. He helped lead the way on a, on a whole raft of sanctions action, including the important exclusion of Russia from the SWIFT uh, money transfer regime. And he has been impressive and resolute 
out in the way, not just the way he's spoken about the crisis, but in what Britain has done to help directly um, the, the Ukrainian forces in dealing with the, the threat of artillery and tank force from the Russians. You know, Britain has led the way in providing training and material and arms to the Ukrainian forces, which are making such a difference on mm. the ground. You've seen the last couple of days... Um the bombing of the maternity hospital in Mariupol and, and the shelling of, of civilians across Ukraine. And like I said, the UK is doing all it can to try and help with that situation, with those fleeing the situation. What, what's the sort of one thing that you want to see the government do over the next week so that, you know, if we were come to speak this time, the end of next week, that the government has done to try and improve that situation, whether it's on the ground in Ukraine or whether it's uh, in the UK? Well, I think that government has to carry on working hard with our international partners to continue to tighten the vice of sanctions around Russia. Today's announcements on named oligarchs was another important step. We have got to continue keeping that momentum going so that with every day that passes, this doesn't just cost Russia in terms of the sheer direct costs of an invasion, but is costing them long term when it comes to the viability of their economy and frankly the lifestyle of the people of Russia. It doesn't give us any pleasure to say that because it's not the people of Russia who are responsible for this but it has to be all linked to that one man Putin the autocrat who is uh, with his decision to leave the Council of Europe and the European Convention on Human Rights indicating his position very very clearly. Uh, This now is a case of right against wrong. And I am confident that the right will prevail. The crisis in Ukraine continues to dominate the news, but it's still been a pretty busy week elsewhere in Westminster politics. On Tuesday, a long-awaited report into allegations against John Burko was published. Parliament's independent expert panel found the former Commons Speaker to be a serial bully after upholding more than 20 allegations against him by former House staff. But as well as depriving Burko of a parliamentary pass, something he claimed he didn't want anyway, an extraordinary statement put out in response to the report. It raises uncomfortable questions for Labour, who accepted Burko as a party member last year while this investigation was hanging over him. Labour has provisionally suspended him following the report's publication. For Parliament too, there are decisions to be made about his legacy on the estate, as our reporter Noah Hoffman has written about this week. Ellie, just explain a bit what she found out. Uh, so the first little thing that Noah found out is that there is a gym in Parliament for MPs and staff to use, and the spin studio was named after John Burko, mm. and she exclusively revealed that that plaque will now be removed. I don't know if they're going to name it after somebody else or if they're just not going to name the spin studio anymore. Sure. <laughs> that is now gone after the allegations, <laughs> um, which I think, you know, maybe the biggest blow to John Burko. <laughs> There's also some discussions around every speaker, when they are in their post, they get a portrait that goes up in Speaker's house, and John Burko has one, I've seen mm. it. It is massive. Yep. It costs over £37,000 to do. Yep. They are not taking it down, but they are considering putting up a plaque. They're basically looking at what they can do to address the controversy around him, which is quite an extraordinary thing. So sort of Parliament's trying to sort of de-Burkoify itself after this report. It's quite strange. It's kind of, especially from a sort of um, conservative government, which has been very against cancel culture and and tearing down statues and and putting up plaques and and sort of trying to rewrite history. It does feel as though they're almost in favour of rewriting history when it comes to John Burko. Yes, I mean, he was not a favourite of um, the Conservative government. Um, he, I don't think many people were sad to mm. see the back of him. Hence um, the not, not nominating from a peerage and that sort of stuff. Yes, which he, he wasn't very happy about, among you know other things. 
Yeah, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. And his portrait is very interesting because it's very different to every other speaker that's come before him. All mm. the others are stood up and they're in their, their robes or in their garb. But he chose to be painted in the speaker's chair, sat down like he's about to tell somebody off. A classic sort of Burkonian pose yeah. where he sort of, you can see the, the, the order is is slipping out of his lips as he, as he sort of leans forward, <laughs> yes. doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. so it, it was clear that he wanted to, to sell himself as like this very modernising mm. figure. And that's what he wants, still wants his legacy to be. And unfortunately, his legacy has been this absolutely damning report, which yeah. we've, all, we've all read it and it is shocking yeah. from start to finish. On a more serious note, though, Labour are going to have to answer the questions as to why knowing this investigation was ongoing when he obviously I think Labour Party saw it as a bit of a coup this former Tory MP this former uh, speaker deciding that he was going to abandon the party that he'd been a member of for for decades and instead join Labour but but Kate does now not look a little bit like a, a rash move to have done so without waiting for the results of this this IEP report yeah I think that was a pretty poor decision by Labour you know, you can treat these things in politics as big political wins. So I know there's been a defection from one Conservative MP, Christian Wakeford's gone across to Labour. They probably saw getting Burko was about as wonderful a coup as some kind of defection. But I don't feel like they sort of read round the wider issue. They didn't see what was coming down the track. And I think they were just, Labour was just so in a rush to move on from the Jeremy Corbyn era and to show that they had broader appeal. And also, you know, I guess they wanted to say thank you for everything that he did in the chamber (laughs) on Brexit, which, (laughs) you know, he was always one for picking out an amendment that would maybe delay what the government was uh, intending on doing. Which, as Ellie pointed out, didn't exactly endear him to to either the May or, or Johnson government. I mean, I was with a minister this week who, when the news came through, just could not hide their delight to be honest he's not a popular figure no and it's quite a fall from grace but yes Labour rushed into that decision I think to to welcome Burko and and now they're going to have to roll back from it and it's going to be quite embarrassing for them really yeah absolutely Elsewhere, Parliament's been celebrating International Women's Day this week uh, with a host of events, including our own Women in Westminster reception on Monday from the House magazine. Ellie, you were there for us. Um, can you uh, talk us through what happened that night? Yeah, it was a fantastic evening. Caroline Noakes, who chairs the Women's Equality Committee, she spoke. And there was a, a glittering, glittering crowd. I was doing some interviews out the front and I spoke to um, Therese Coffey. I spoke to uh, Chloe Smith. I spoke to Deputy Speaker Eleanor Lang and a couple of journalists as well. And yeah, it was absolutely fantastic evening. And we also had last night, Kate and I were there at the Women's Lobby Drinks, mm-hmm. which is hosted by Laura Koonsberg. Richie Sunat spoke and he had his two little girls there who are absolutely adorable. <laughs> right. He, he said in his speech that he wanted to show them you know, powerful women within within Westminster. And one of them even actually wants to be a journalist. Which <laughs> okay, <is> a, interesting. <laughs> he seemed absolutely thrilled about and uh, Caroline Wiener, who's Sunday Times political editor, she gave a speech talking about how far the lobby has come, saying how people used to struggle to get a job share passes, the House wouldn't give it to them, yeah. and, and now that's quite normal. There's quite a few people who've done job shares over the years. And praising the fact that at the moment there are seven female political editors, although that number is sadly going down because we are losing Kate Proctor from that number. It is indeed our own, we're going to say goodbye to our own woman in Westminster, uh, Kate Proctor, who's leaving the lobby to go and do something actually useful, like uh, work for Save the Children. So uh, KP... What are you going to miss about the, lo- about the lobby and what are you going to miss the most about being in Westminster as a journalist? Well, I've had a front row seat at some of the most incredible 
political events of the last seven years and it's been an absolute roller coaster. I've spent much of that time actually with you, Alan, yeah. in our various jobs. It's been a privilege to see this crazy time so close up and to get to know some of the characters that are so influential in our day-to-day lives. But um, really, apart from that, I will I will miss the camaraderie and the sense of humour and the crack and the banter. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is nothing quite like a kind of daft political conversation with your colleagues. No. The things we talk about behind the scenes when we go for a drink have me in stitches and I will miss everyone's sense of humour so much. And I think you need to laugh in this job because it's yeah. so crazy. Definitely not appropriate for the podcast. No. But, we'll, we'll <laughs> um, but no, well, thanks so much. Yeah, and like you say, we've worked together for, for a long time and very, very sad to, to see you go. But unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week thanks so much to my colleague Anna Langford for joining me today and all the best from Politics Home and the House Magazine family to Kate Proctor all right this has been Laura Silver you can follow them on Twitter at Kate uh, underscore M underscore Proctor at Ellen Amir and at Laura Silver underscore and I'm at Alan underscore Tolhurst thanks as well to this week's excellent guest Robert Buckland and most of all thanks again to you all for listening please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to keep up to date if you've enjoyed it then leave us a review and if you want to get in touch with us, reach out on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. If you want more great reporting and analysis from Politics Home and our colleagues at The House magazine, you can subscribe to our daily newsletters. Just click on the sign-up page in the top right-hand corner of our website. This week's Saturday email has a great story from our incoming political editor Adam Payne on the Ukraine crisis and how it is affecting the cost of living here in the UK and the battle between Rishi Sunak and the business secretary Kwasi Kwarteng. So be sure to take a look at that. I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>